επίχρανε αυτόν γεφθάμενον της αρκός αυτού και τούτο προλαβό της Αγίας ευχόης. Ο Άγιος της είναι επικράτης, είναι αντίστασικά, You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Bacchus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. My friend and biblical studies colleague, Bethany Saros, recently published her first book. The title is A Light in the Darkness, Bible Study for Children and Teens. I recently interviewed Bethany about her book, and today's episode is that interview. Bethany is a writer and teacher. She has had a lifelong love of literature. She's also a homeschooling mother of three, and she brings insights from her experience in homeschooling to her discussion of her book. Bethany is an Orthodox Christian, and she and her family are members of St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You'll hear her mention the name Father Mark. She is referring to Father Mark Bulos. Father Mark is the pastor at St. Elizabeth and also the co-host of the Bible as Literature podcast. At the end of the interview, Bethany recommends resources for parents. There will be links to those resources and also to Bethany's book, in the program notes for today's episode. So don't worry about having to remember the names as you listen. This is my discussion with Bethany Saros. Joining me today is Bethany Saros. Bethany has a new book out entitled A Light in the Darkness, Bible Study for Children and Teens, and she's here today to tell us about it. Thank you for being here to talk about your new book, Bethany, and congratulations. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. As Orthodox Christians, most of the books in church bookstores are books about the lives of saints, or there are illustrated Bibles, or books that teach children about Orthodox Christian culture. But your book is different. I think it's a rare voice out there. That said, I'd like to start by asking you to describe your book. Sure. I would like to make very clear from the get-go that this was never intended to be a curriculum. It's meant to be a guide for parents who are interested and want to teach their kids how to read the Bible or to study the Bible. So I tried using, I used literary mechanisms that I learned in college and while homeschooling my children to kind of, kind of bring that bring that to life, make that a little bit easier for parents. 
the Bible can be very overwhelming and abstract, I think, to a lot of people. And so my goal was to try to break it down step by step, lots of examples of how to make it easier for parents and children. I just wanted to, you know, to make it clear that you don't need a seminary degree to study the Bible. You don't have to have gone to seminary. You don't have to be a priest. I think that's like a common misconception that you need to be so educated to study the Bible, but you don't. Mm. Indeed. Thank you. You've, you've already said a little bit about this, but what was your intention with this book? Why did you write it? Well, when I became a mom, I decided that I I wanted to raise my kids in the Orthodox Church, and I was very passionate about being the best parent that I could be, the best Orthodox parent that I could be. And I kept looking for the perfect parenting book to tell me how to do that and how to raise my kids in the Orthodox Church. But everything that I found was kind of more focused on fasting and prayers and taking to liturgy and kind of basically turning, like almost turning your home into a monastery. And if I don't want it to be a monastic, I would have done that. But I was just, I couldn't, it just felt very, very rule oriented and very, I don't want to say shallow because these things have their place, but it didn't feel like enough, I guess maybe is the right word. And there was always this pressure to do everything perfectly, to carry out the fast so perfectly, all of these things, and trying to convince children to you know, to do these things is not not an easy task. And I just just kind of felt empty in a way, I guess. And so I kept trying to find this book. Where is this book to give me the answers? Because that is usually what I do is I go and I find a book. And Little did I know that that book was collecting dust upon my bookshelf. <laughs> and so then my family and I arrived at St. Elizabeth's and I was listening to Father Mark teach about the Bible. And the way that he talked about the Bible was different than anything that I had ever heard before in my whole life. <laughs> I was raised Protestant, so it was kind of more of a literal interpretation. That was kind of my background. But I was just fascinated by this idea of reading the Bible as literature. I was a literary major in college, and I just thought that that was so interesting. And I was so on board, and I was studying everything, and I was so excited. And then they asked me to teach Sunday school, (laughs) which is a whole other level of the Bible, because now I had to take what I was learning and figure out how to simplify it for kids. And I did not know what I was doing. I did not feel like, I did not feel prepared. I went into that first class that I had to teach and I, it didn't go super well. And I came out of it and I thought, this was, this was a disaster. (laughs) And I spoke with some other parents and they were also on the schedule to teach and they felt the same way. They didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't feel prepared. They didn't feel adequate to teach the Bible. They were all like, oh, these other people who have taught 
Sunday school, they've been to seminary and they know these things. And who are we? We don't know anybody. We don't know anything. And (laughs) so I thought about it for a while. And the more I thought about it, I finally approached Father Mark. And I said, what do you think about curriculum (laughs) to teach the Bible? And anybody who knows Father Mark knows that he is not a fan of curriculums. (laughs) So he said, let's not do a curriculum. Let's, how about you write a guide for parents on how to teach them how to teach their children the Bible. And so that's kind of where the book was born. (laughs) So this need for, I need to be able to teach children scripture and how, how can I do that? And so if you don't have the book available, then write the book as they say. Yes, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And we are the better for having your book, truly. Um, Thank God. The next thing I'd like to do is, is move into some questions from your introduction. The introduction of your book is loaded with valuable content. You create a context for the reader. And so I have a few questions from that section. You write about teaching narration. You write, quote, narration is an excellent technique used for calling children's attention to the text, unquote. What do you mean by this? Narration at its core is storytelling, right? So anytime we narrate all the time, we tell stories. That's who we are as people. It's a very core part of our identity. If I go on vacation to national parks and see a deer and tell you about the amazing views that we saw, or or if my son goes to a movie and comes home and tells me the plot, that's narration. We narrate everything. <laughs> and so, so it's taking something that you have seen, done, read, and you're telling another person about it. So for reading, for our purposes, for the Bible, reading the Bible, it forces children and parents to pay attention to the story. Because then they have to tell it back when they're done. They have to sit and listen. Yeah, so if you read a passage of the Bible and then you ask them, okay, tell me about what happened just now, then they realize pretty quickly that they need to pay attention in order to follow the story and to tell you about it. So that's kind of narration in a nutshell. Thank you. You also write, quote, narration teaches children submission to the story, unquote. Can you say more about that? Um, Yeah, so they have to listen. They have to pay attention. And that's really hard for anyone. You know, even adults struggle with sitting and listening and paying attention. They really need to hear what the story, or the person for that matter, but what the story is saying. And they need to be able to show what they know. There's no room for personal opinions or creative fiction. My youngest... When she's, she's seven, when she's narrating, sometimes if I know, I know she hasn't been paying attention because she'll look at the pictures and kind of like invent a story (laughs) to go to, you know, to kind of go with what, because she wasn't paying attention, she'll just make something up and you can't do that (laughs) in real life. 
If you and I decide to go to a restaurant and you give me directions and I don't pay attention, I can't invent a new way there. You know, I can't make one up and hope I get there. (laughs) So, So, but it's the same way with the Bible. So if you don't pay attention, you can't just fill in the things that you missed or the gaps that you think are there with something of your own invention. You have to really listen and see what's what's actually there. Mm. Next question is, you write about your personal challenges in teaching the Bible to your children. What is the biggest challenge, do you think, and and how are you managing it? Oh, I would say consistency is probably the biggest challenge. I never want to promote the picture just because I wrote this book that my kids and I are sitting around every morning and peacefully reading the Bible together. That is totally not how it is. (laughs) They don't want to. It's hard. They don't like it. Mm -hmm. You know, some mornings I'd rather scroll Facebook with my coffee. It's just we're a totally normal family. (laughs) But sometimes like a month will go by and I'll be like, oh, shoot, I should probably (laughs) get us back to that. So I would say consistency has really been challenging. My oldest is a teenager now. And so that's been challenging in its own way. I think teenagers are more resistant to anything that their parents think is valuable. So kind of like convincing him that it is valuable has been a challenge. But at the end of the day, too, that's not really my job. My job is to just teach him. And so I just have kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, well, you'll thank me someday. (laughs) My job is to make him read it. And the rest is up to God. I can't do anything about (laughs) I can't do anything about his opinions. So, (laughs) And that's really valuable that you're very clear about what your task is, about what your job is, and the outcome is not not in your purview. We get so intense about how it's going to turn out. (laughs) That's a big thing in our culture, the goal, the result. Right. Yeah, we get all caught up in the end result and we have no control. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Bethany, on page 19 of your book, you make a brilliant observation. You write, quote, A parent does not need to embody wisdom in order to teach it. What we need to pass on to our children is a love of wisdom. This strikes at the heart of a bias in our culture, and that is the good example. We Worship at the altar of the good example. But you have dynamited the good example here. Whether the parent knows the Bible or does not, or whether they are a good or a bad example, does not matter. What's your perspective on this? Oh, well, yes, I used to also worship at the altar of the good example. And I hear that so much, too, especially even in the Orthodox parenting books. See, I hear so much about just set the example and your children will follow. But I feel very strongly that this good example thing that we're so thralled with is control in another form. It's trying to control the outcome in a different form. 
you think if you behave perfectly, which will never behave perfectly, <laughs> no, no one is good but God. There is no way, <laughs> you know. And I've known people whose parents were terrible. They grew up in terrible circumstances, and they are some of the most wonderful human beings that I know. And I think that just goes to show that God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. And a hard truth to swallow sometimes is that sometimes maybe he is going to use those bad examples or whatever because he's going to use them for your benefit because maybe that made you who you are and now you're going to do something. You can't decide. (laughs) Uh, It's God is the one who is in control and... For us as parents, it's very easy to lose sight of that because we just feel like we have to mold our children and send them out into the world and make sure that they behave right and do all of these things. And it's exhausting. (laughs) I was so relieved when I came to St. Elizabeth's and was listening to the Bible and I finally realized I don't have to control this. I have a duty as a parent to teach my children, clothe them, feed them, house them. That's my duty to my children. But beyond that? Totally. And I certainly think that we can use a heavy dose of humility in this respect. We talk about a lot about humility in in Eastern Orthodox tradition, but I mean it in, in the way that we're speaking about it. Humility for your own ego. We need to take ourselves a little bit out of the accountability for the outcome. This is another thing we worship. Definitely our own ego. God is in control. If they grow up to be an atheist or an agnostic, perhaps that is God's plan for them. I don't know. I did my job. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, you just have to trust. And I think that's really lacking in the good example philosophy. Yep. Bethany, let's move on to the heart of your book. Most of your book is a discussion of chapters in the book of Matthew. Many of the references, imagery, and details in the book of Matthew come from the Old Testament books. It's important to be familiar with the Old Testament story as well so that you can understand what Matthew is trying to say. Can you give us an example of a detail from Matthew whose source is from the Old Testament books? Um, Sure. So one of my favorite things that I learned about the Bible and the Gospels in particular is that whenever Jesus speaks, he's usually referring back to the Old Testament, which is so fascinating for me because... Growing up in the Protestant church, I was always taught that Jesus came to abolish the Old Testament and the New Testament was kind of the replacement. So there wasn't as much significance. But I loved that when Jesus speaks, that he's trying to refer us back to the Old Testament, trying to redirect our paths back to Deuteronomy. We need to understand Deuteronomy to understand the references, a lot of the references that are made in the New Testament. So one example that I was looking at is the temptation of Jesus. And this is really fascinating for me. So he's in the wilderness, you know, doing the 40-day fast. And at the end, the devil comes and says, 
oh, you're the son of God. Why don't you change these stones into bread if you're hungry? And Jesus answers him with a text that refers back to Deuteronomy, where it says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so then the devil comes back at him with text and says, well, here's this psalm. Stand up on this pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down because the angels will take care of you, like the psalm says. But Jesus knows better because he knows the text and he answers with a verse again from Deuteronomy. Don't tempt the Lord your God. So it's like this exchange of scripture that's so fascinating. And he's, it's almost like the devil is testing Jesus' knowledge by misusing the text, taking it and using it incorrectly. And then Jesus is responding with the correct text, the correct interpretation of the text. And it makes this story more fascinating. And then it makes the rest of it all more fascinating because you're like, where else are these little nuggets that, you know, that are referring back to the Old Testament? And for me, it just filled in so many gaps, so many holes. There it all was right there in front of me. The Bible is like an onion. There's just so many layers to it. Yep. These texts are woven together, meaning the New Testament narratives, the content comes from all the Old Testament books, the imagery, the references, the story details, it's all there. In fact, the word text is from the Latin for woven, to be woven, to weave something. And so... That's where we get the word textile, which is about weaving cloth. So it's very interesting. I do love, I just want to jump in real quick, because I do love that imagery you said of them being woven together, because the Bible is this big, elaborate tapestry of things and stories woven together. And I think not knowing that or understanding that is like looking at one tiny thread of this big, huge tapestry. And you can't appreciate it when if it's just the one tiny thread, you have no idea. (laughs) So it's easy to make up a story to go with it. (laughs) Indeed. Bethany, I've noticed something about church life. The way that Bible studies are conducted and sermons are given, and that is that we are so focused on the application We focus less on the content of the Bible and more on the application. We want to know the lesson, and we panic to know how to apply it. But we don't know the story. And it's my conviction that this is wrong. This anxiety, this eagerness, focus on the application, puts us at risk for getting the lesson wrong, because we don't know the story. The further away from the story, the more likely we will not hear its lesson. We may hear our lesson, but we won't hear its lesson. In your discussion of Matthew chapter 2, you make a great point about application. You write, quote, let us give our children the Bible as their light in dark places, but let them decide when and how to use it, unquote. Can you say more about this? 
Um, sure. So yeah, so application, I think it kind of also goes back to control. We get a hint of the lesson, and I'm totally guilty of this, and then you immediately want to go out and apply. And you maybe you don't fully understand the information. I can't tell you how many times I've started a recipe, read it, looked it over, scanned it, like, okay, I got it. And then I'll get about halfway through it and realize, oh, I was supposed to marinate this for 24 hours before I started. So I think that we we want results. We want them now. And we don't want to be bothered with sitting and reading the instructions. You just want to go ahead and start doing it, which is kind of the American culture. I mean, look at Nike. Just do it. <laughs> like, you don't don't think about it. Just do it. But you have to... You have to get the instructions first. And I think we want to do that with our children, too. You'll read a parenting book and be like, yes, now I have the way. Let's go do this. But then you missed this whole section, (laughs) you know, that had that was kind of important. And I think it's a tendency to do that for most things. So there is there's a humility in taking your time to read those instructions. You're taking a moment to pause and say, do I have this? Do I really have this? Did I miss something? What is this really saying? And that's a key ingredient that's missing in modern Bible readings. We're, we just want to get the gist of it and move on to the solution because then our lives will be better, right? But your lives aren't better if it doesn't stick because you didn't read the instructions. (laughs) The solution is the submission. If you submit and you take that moment to pause and read what is written, then you can truly find a lasting solution (laughs) or a, a lasting application. But at the same time, even with the pause, you have to be sure that you don't hang out there too long either. Because then you'll never take action and you'll never apply. So you have to find this balance between the pause and the application. (sighs) In chapter 5, you take on Paul's epistles. We hear so little of Paul's epistles in church on Sunday, and it leaves people to conclude that they are too difficult for regular people to understand. They seem mysterious to us. And you take on terms in the epistles that are widely misunderstood, and it's bold, and I want to appreciate you for that. In Paul's epistles, he is teaching the communities he is addressing how to behave. And for us as hearers, there are lessons for us, too, to correct our misunderstandings. Can you give us an example from your book of a lesson from Galatians or from 1 Corinthians? Yeah, so the lesson on 1 Corinthians 13, it's the 4 to 7, I think, is one of my favorites because I get to use Deacon Henock of the Tuahito Bible Study Podcast. I get to use one of his quotes about the Bible, and it's, The Bible is meant to be used as a magnifying glass for ourselves, not a telescope to examine what others are doing. And I just love love that quote so much. <laughs> so... Let me just read the the Bible passage quickly. It's, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So I think a common misunderstanding among modern day Christians is that love means pointing out what other people are doing wrong. I know that that was fairly prevalent in the church culture that I was raised in. That was in the Protestant church. I see it even still today, kind of in the Orthodox church. People are very quick to point out what other groups of people are doing wrong. (laughs) And it's, we're not meant to do that. That's not our job. You can recognize something if something's not healthy, perhaps, but it's not your job to say it's good or bad. That's, that's up to God. You don't know what God is using that person for. If you're going to correct your children, that's different. They're your responsibility. You're teaching them how to be in the world. But going out and finding a random person on the street and saying, that's bad, that what you're doing is bad. Oh, that's homeless person. He's a drunk and don't give him any money. You don't know. You don't know anything. You have no idea why that person is there. It's not our job to tell someone else if what they're doing is a sin or not. We have to love that person. And that leads me to another point. Love is not a feeling. It's a commitment. It is showing up for people when they're at their worst. (laughs) Showing up if you are bored with the person that you're married to. Showing up and feeding your newborn baby in the middle of the night for the 10th time when they're colicky. You're exhausted. It's accepting that maybe your parents weren't snuggly, cuddly people, but they fed, clothed, housed, and educated you, and that was their way of showing love. It's making three meals a day for your family every day until you die. (laughs) That's commitment. That's love. It's just not this mushy, gushy feeling that we've made it out to be in our society. And I really like that the Hebrew word for love, I think it's ahava. But it's made up of three letters, and the letters are broken down into two parts. I give and I love. And I really love that, that loving and giving are woven together. Beautiful. Thank you. What we don't hear often in discussions of love is the effort, the labor, the trouble. Entertainment has given us the impression that there somehow that there isn't this aspect of labor and effort and things can get dirty, things can get troublesome. The act of loving somebody is trouble, is trouble. You're asking for trouble. You're going to be inconvenienced. You're going to be put upon. That's real life. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of this movie I saw. I think it was about Ray Charles, the blind piano player, the musician. And he was just in the movie. He was newly blind as a child and he fell. And his mom was standing there in the kitchen with him and he fell and he couldn't figure out where he was. He was disoriented and couldn't figure out how to stand up. And she just stood there quietly and did not help him. And she watched him. And it was such a powerful moment because tears were just streaming down her face because you could see that she wanted so much to go and help him and help him up and help him find his way. But she stood there and she waited 
and he was crying, and then finally he stands up and figures it out on his own. And that was her gift to him (laughs) in that moment, was by not helping him, even though she wanted to, even though it hurt her heart (laughs) to watch him, (laughs) to watch him struggle. For her, that was the loving gift, that was the love (laughs) that she gave to him in that moment. What an amazing woman. Mm -hmm. And that's such a a great example of giving people what they need, not what they want, which is another of our biases, I think, is that we focus on what people want, not what they need. And it, it takes us down some dark paths as a culture. Beautiful example that she put her own pain, her own wish to help him. Her own emotions. She kept her own emotions and desires in check for his benefit. That that is, I think that's the definition of maturity of an adult. Bethany, are there any resources, books, or online materials that you recommend for parents who would like to prepare themselves to teach the Bible to their children? Yes. Uh, So I was recently introduced to a wonderful book. It's called Know and Tell, The Art of Narration by Karen Glass. It's a fabulous introduction to narration for anyone that's new to it. It comes highly recommended across the homeschool world. And it it takes it even further into developing writing skills. So, I mean, if you want to have your kids write something about the Bible too, or if you are homeschooling and want to incorporate it, it's great. It's not, the the book isn't about narrating the Bible specifically, but it is just a good introduction to narration in general. And I also love anything by Charlotte Mason, who's kind of the mother of narration in the homeschool world. She was a and uh, I think 18th century teacher. She was a teacher and she used narration with her students and she kind of pushed using that in schools and she's fabulous. And these books have been very helpful to me in teaching my kids how to narrate the Bible. Excellent. Thank you. Bethany, thank you so very much for taking this time to talk with me and tell us about your book. And um, I'll just, for everybody's sake, I will just repeat the title. Bethany's book is entitled A Light in the Darkness, Bible Study for Children and Teens. Please get yourself a copy. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you. Vext is a production of the Ephesus School Network.